0: Welcome to the Axiom Podcast. This is episode 19. I'm Joey Brandon, your host, and welcome to another episode of the Axiom Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about highest and best use, and this is a favorite topic of mine when it comes to defining the role of the business owner in the business, because when you're looking at the person who literally calls all the shots, they can do whatever they want to do. They can can decide what their schedule is going to look like. They can decide who they're going to be... um, who they're going to be hiring, who they're going to be firing, what customers they're going to work with, what products they're going to sell. There's a lot of stuff that they can do, but what are the things that they should be doing? And the success or failure of the business owner or the leader in terms of their leadership and driving the direction of the business usually comes down, uh, sometimes it comes down to defining the things that they're not going to do anymore. And to get to that list of things that they are going to do and aren't going to do, we start talking about what their highest and best use is. So I had a conversation with a business owner this past week, and we were on this topic. And the more we talked about the things that she was doing that we didn't feel like she should be doing anymore, one of the things that that started to crop up is she was really allowing a bad business process to pull her out of the things that she should be doing because she was putting herself in place of making up for the bad business process. So I think, and it got me to thinking about why is it that business owners get sucked into doing these other things and what are the, what's the highest and best use that they should be pursuing? And I really believe that there's a progression that a business moves through, a business owner and leader moves through, in terms of what their highest and best use is. And I think it's the same for almost every business. Of course, when we make such a broad, sweeping statement like that, we're going to have to talk in some generalities. But there are types of activities that business owners do, and then they kind of graduate to the next level, and there's a different type of activity that becomes their highest and best use. And then they mature a little bit more, and there's a different type of activity after that that's now their highest and best use. And I believe... It, I believe it starts with a specific type of activity, and then I believe it progresses all the way through to a specific type of activity. And I also think that once you get to a certain level, when other people begin to do that, that kind of penultimate highest and best use for you, it means it's time to step away from the business as the leader. And and this is what succession should look like. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about this episode because it gives me a chance to talk about kind of some maybe meta-consulting ideas um, in terms of defining the leader's role and what that looks like in practice and how it can inform our view of the life cycle of a business and a business leader. So let's get started. So I think when you talk about what should the business owner be doing, you're usually talking about ultimately what they shouldn't be doing. So we, we get to a point. So let's say that, um, you know, let's say in the early days of the business, the business owner is often the chief cook and bottle washer. They do absolutely everything. And so you, you have, um, like maybe the business owner opens up the shop every morning and closes the shop down every evening. And that's, a necessity in the early days, because there 's literally nobody else to do it, so there you know if you're employee one and there is no employee two, and the shop has to open at six a m and close at six p m guess what you 're going to be doing both now there are businesses business owners who do this for twenty or thirty years that 's certainly not what I advocate to my clients i don 't want them working twelve hours on the floor every day and and plus the time that they give it on the weekend or the business leadership time that they give it at the end of the day or over weekends where they're doing other things that have to be done to tend to the future direction of the business, and they burn out because they're working 78 hours a week. I don't, also don't think it's very good for their marriages or for their families, and so I don't advocate that. But it's a necessity in the early days of the business. But those are at, these are some of the, the most basic technical tasks That have to get done in the business, opening up shop and closing the shop. So when we talk about highest and best use, if we're talking to this business owner and now they have, say, two or three or four employees, and we say, what's your highest and best use? The highest and best use probably isn't opening and closing the shop every day. Now, maybe they want to open the shop every day because they like to be the first ones there, and maybe part of Part of that opening process is a big part of their highest and best use at that life stage, life cycle stage of the business. And so they say, well, I need to open the shop, but they certainly don't need to close the shop every day. That's not their highest and best use. So we go through the process of defining does closing the shop look like? What are the technical details of closing the shop? So, you know, it could be as simple as teaching somebody how to set the alarm system and rotating those responsibilities so that you you kind of have a separation of duties and it's not going to be the same person every time and they may not know who it's going to be until the you know the the day of and you go you're going to close up shop tonight it could be closing out the cash drawer it could be um calling the insurance company and making sure the people who are going to close out the cash drawer are bonded it could be um, doing the daily deposit drop there's there's lots of things that technically are involved in that closing the shop, but the owner's never thought through documenting what all of those things are and training somebody to do them because it's always been part of their routine. Well, now we're, we're wanting to free up some of the owner's time so they can pursue the next highest and best use. And so the scenario might look like this, which is often the case. After we talk about technical tasks, maybe the next highest and best use is selling. So we say, listen, we know you want to open the shop every day and you really believe there's some fundamental reasons you need to be the person to do that in terms of setting the tone for how the day starts or meeting with the managers first thing in the morning or supervising shipments that are about to go out the door, whatever, whatever the case may be. We've decided that opening the shop is still part of your highest and best use, but we also recognize that spending more time with customers as part of your highest and best use. And one of the best times to do that is at the end of the day, we would like you calling on customers between three and five o'clock. And if that's what we want you to do, we have to train somebody else to close up shop. So let's go through and identify all the different tasks that you, uh, that you do without even thinking about it and document those. And then let's start training people to do those things. And so that, so what we've done is we've improved a business process. We've improved the closing process to the extent that the business owner doesn't have to do it anymore. The reason the business owner was doing it before is because there wasn't a good process and he knew how to do it. She knew how to do it. And so they just took care of it and they were able to ignore improving the business process for a time because they didn't have anything else to do. And, And so, It's not so much that it was a bad business process, it's just that the business was not in a place where they needed to, uh, they they weren't in a place where they were required to improve that business process to grow. Well, now they are, so now we have an impetus to improve the process, we do it, and the owner is able to move on to the next level. So I think that first level of highest and best use in the infancy of a business in its earliest days The highest and best use of the owner often is a certain set of technical tasks because there's nobody else there to do them. And when there's nobody else there to do them and the owner knows how, well, they have to get done for the business to function. So that's highest and best use. That's stage one, I I would say. Stage two tends to be selling. So there are technical tasks. So, like, you don't get the opportunity to sell until you open up shop. Right? So highest and best use, if you're to rank them you know, hierarchy-wise, there's some technical details that have to take get taken care of. And there's almost always going to be a certain segment of your customers that ju- you, you're just an order taker for them. So you could make the argument that the business owner doesn't have to spend that much time on selling in the early days. They really have to spend time on some technical tasks because if the technical tasks don't get done, then even the the folks who they're order taking from are not going to show up because they can't they're not there's not going to be anything to buy or there's not going to be any service to deliver but once they get beyond that technical task and they get some other people in the business who can do some of the technical, th- technical things for them it's usually selling that the business owner moves into so just to kind of tell you what this looks like in practice, if I talk to a business owner and I say, what's your highest and best use? And I say, my highest and best use is doing the monthly sales commission report for all the salesmen. And I go, really, why is that your highest and best use? Well, because I'm the only one who can do it. So what that's told me is that this business is at that infancy stage in terms of the, using the leader's capacity, fully engaging the owner of that business in their highest and best use. They're just getting started. They're literally in the starting blocks, and they haven't really gotten out of the gate. Now, it's probably the case that this is a higher and better use than what they were doing maybe two or three years ago. So they're not opening up the shop anymore, closing the shop anymore. They've graduated to approving the sales commission report, but it's still a technical task. So... Getting to stage two, where selling is typically where they're spending more of their time on key customer accounts, and they are um, they're usually the kind of the chief salesperson. Uh, certainly, they land the biggest accounts. They're usually involved in selling the newest product lines, coming up with some of those product lines, and the, and the way they come up with the product lines is through co- uh, contact with customers and, and customer engagement. And they actually sell things before they're built or before. The service is even defined. They just see a need and a customer willing to to pay for it because it's valuable to them. So they take the order and they, they figure out how to deliver on it. That's what entrepreneurs are very good at. But selling is one of those things that is really just kind of stage two of this progression in highest and best use. So as a business grows, they will start to hire salespeople. Now, one of the things that I've learned in working with small businesses is that, most business owners are capable of selling about a million dollars worth of business. They they can't d- usually deliver a million dollars worth of business, but if if their operation is segmented into a sales and an operations side or a sales and a service side, they can sell a million dollars worth of business. And I don't know why it's a million dollars. It's, it's probably not exactly, uh, statistically speaking. But I just see that as a rule of thumb. Where most business owners can sell a million dollars. For them to get beyond a million dollars, they usually have to have a sales force. So they have, and it usually takes two or three other people to get to $2 million. So the business owner can sell a million, but not everybody's made to be a business owner. Not everybody has the network they do or the motivation they do or the whatever all those intangibles are that make them the great salesperson that they are. So you'll bring in, uh the salesperson number two might sell two hundred and fifty or three hundred thousand worth of business or three hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of business, and then salesperson number two comes in and adds another three hundred thousand to that, and then salesperson number three comes in and adds another three or four hundred thousand to that, and now you're at two million dollars worth of business. But the business owner is still highly involved in maintaining that million dollars worth of business that they have, and they troubleshoot key accounts and and they get to stage three. So, stage two is that selling idea. Stage three is really about maintaining influential relationships, and these are typically customers. So, once they get the the um, they close the million dollars worth of business, then they move into this role of hiring other people and trying to motivate them to get their sales figures up. They get to two million. And they start handing off some key accounts, but for the most part, they're order takers for these accounts. These people came into the business with the owner. They have a long history. They've got a great personal relationship, and they're going to continue buying for the business on the basis of that relationship. And sometimes it's the owner's assistant or the clerical person in the sales department that just continues to service these customers. Sometimes they'll be handed off to other salespeople, and if a major problem arises the owner gets brought in. So when you get to these companies and you say what's your highest and best use and they say oh my highest and best use is maintaining customer relationships, mentally I go okay, they're they're like at stage 3. So they've moved past the highly technical stuff which is stage 1. They've moved past the primary role of salesperson which is stage 2, and now they're in this role of maintaining relationships. And it's it's very common for those those relationships to be dominated by customer relationships, but they also involve things like vendor relationships, supply house relationships, um, key referral relationships. And it's the owner who holds all of these things together because again, they have the network, they're the feet on the street, they're the face of the business um, the business has grown to $2 million, $3 million at this point, but still they're the face of the business, and and it's very hard to separate the personal goodwill that they bring to the equation from the business itself. If they left and decided they didn't want to do this anymore, most of the business would just kind of dry up and go away. It's not really going to outlive them at this point. So that's stage three is maintaining those influential relationships. So when we push a business owner to get to the next level, what do they have to do? Well, th- they have to take themselves out of the picture. And it's always interesting because I think business owners either get this from the start or they have a very hard time learning it as they go. There's a cult of personality, especially in professional service businesses that's really hard for some owners to overcome. And it's whether it's seeing their name on the marquee or whether it's the idea that it's always, you know, it's always going to be Brandon Inc. or, you know, John Smith Plumbing Inc. or, um, you know, Burt Williams Real Estate Incorporated, whatever the the image that they've had in the, in their head of themselves as a business owner, has it always been strongly identified with them, with their person, with their ego, with their, their everything. And so when you talk to them about, hey, um, and sometimes I'll draw this diagram, I go, well, you, you know, you kind of realize you're only at stage three here, and there's, there's three or four more steps to go until you fully mature as a business owner. And they go, what do you mean? And I go, well, your ego is is really kind of a sign of your immaturity on this path. You have to divorce your personality from the business. And th- there's a lot of reasons why they have a hard time with this. One of them is that personal history, that, that just that idea of of what they've built and how they've always imagined it has always had them at the center. And they've never taken the time to really look at and think about what does the business look like if it outgrows me, if two or three generations from now this thing is much bigger and better than I ever imagined it to be, and I'm, my face isn't associated with it. My name's not associated with it. It's more about the experience. It's more about what the company does than what I do. And they just haven't taken the time to really work that into their vision, so they have a hard time getting their arms around it. But the other thing that happens too is they look at other business scenarios And they say, well, no, but look at Colonel Sanders, for instance. You know, Kentucky Fried Chicken was always about Colonel Sanders. And that I get where they're coming from, but that's not true. The Colonel Sanders brand is something that the company went after as part of a distinct marketing uh, push. It was part of the marketing image that they chose to cultivate. Um, So it could have just as easily been a lizard selling insurance as it could have been Colonel Sanders selling Kentucky Fried Chicken. You know, nobody believes that Ronald McDonald started McDonald's, but McDonald's chose as their marketing push to put a clown, Ronald McDonald, out front. Uh, KFC chose to put this kind of eccentric-looking, larger-than-life Colonel Sanders person as their marketing push. So, you know, you can't look at... All the branding um, successes out there that revolve around a single personality and go oh that 's the way I have to do it too there, For every successful branding campaign that 's built on a single personality there 're probably a hundred that fail uh, because and they fail because the the personality that they 've chosen to brand around does something really stupid. Uh, or gets tired of being on-call 24-7 as the brand personality, and ultimately, you know, it kind of shoots the company in the foot in terms of their efforts to build around a a distinct personality. So I think you have to get away from, if you're going to get past the the next level, if you're going to graduate to the stage four, if you will, of this, then the business owner has to start to disentangle themselves from the relationships, and they, start to ha- they need to delegate those relationships to different people and really work on working themselves out so the business doesn't become all about them. So what do they do when they get out of the relationships? What do they do when they're able to hand off that side? And what does stage four look like? Well, it looks like them spending more of their time architecting the business processes. And this is the stage that the company I talked to this week is at. And the specific example that they gave me in terms of the where they're at on the relationship side of the business right now is getting calls from referral sources at Saturday night at seven o'clock saying, Hey, I've got a new I'm sitting right here with your next customer. Uh, I wanted to introduce the two of you to make sure that things get off to a good start. And these are great referral relationships. These are referral relationships that send, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of business into the company every year. And the business owner feels like her highest and best use is taking that phone call on a Saturday night at 7 o'clock. And as we talked through it, they began to understand that just like all of these situations, everything that we've talked about here, they're allowing the owner to insert themselves into this, I don't want to call it crisis management thing, but I'll call it like this on-call 24-7 response expectation um, is put on the owner because they haven't built a business process to do anything other than that. That That is their process right now. Right now, the process is the owner takes the phone call whenever the phone rings from these half a dozen major referral sources. And so when we, I said, you know, here's what this might look like. I don't know. We're just getting started with them, and, and I said, I, I don't know a ton about your business, but try this on for size. See if you can wrap your head around this. What if you were to go to lunch with these referral sources and you were to tell them how much their business means to you and how uh, important responsiveness was to you, and you also explained that your role in the business is changing and your your life is changing and there's some things changing about how you do business and and your role in the company. And in order to make sure that they get the treatment that you know they deserve, you're going to be changing a few things. So for instance, you might, you might tell them that there's a good chance you're going to be doing a lot more traveling and you're not going to be around on Saturday nights to take their phone call at seven o'clock anymore. But you know that it's very important that their call get answered and that they um, they have their that relationship start at seven o'clock on a Saturday night. So here's what you're going to do: you've set up uh, in your system um, a special person who is going to take those on call phone calls, and all and this person has been notified that the your phone number is one of a handful of very important phone numbers. And when it rings, they're going to answer it at 7 o'clock on a Saturday night. They're going to know it's you. They're going to greet you by name. And they know that if it rings on a Saturday night at 7 o'clock, it's probably going to be about a brand-new customer. And they're going to have everything they need at their fingertips to get that customer set up, to um, get on the phone with them and make them feel the warm fuzzies and make them feel the concierge service because you're bringing them into the company as opposed to them just calling 1-800 number. And the other thing that's going to happen is we have set up in our system a notification that as soon as that client gets generated, as soon as that referral source is onboarded that Saturday night at 7 o'clock, an email goes out to me saying, hey, our very, very important referral partner just... uh, sent this person in, and you need to be aware of it so that you you know what's going on in the company. And I know that when I get back from my trip or when I when I come into the office on Monday morning, um, I know the first three or four phone calls that I'm going to make, and yours is going to be one of them. I'm going to call you to see how things went, and I'm going to call your customer to, to make sure that they feel special and they know that we want to treat them as such. And uh, we think that doing it this way is not only going to continue the service that you're used to, we think it's actually going to get better. We see some real opportunities for your clients to be wowed by this new process. And to be honest with you, you know, there were some times when you would call me and it was on a weekend or night and I, I didn't have my phone with me or I wasn't able to get the call and and you had to wait. And we don't, we don't like that. We know that your business works on the weekends. We know that you're signing up clients on Saturday nights. And we, we've built this new process to accommodate you and make that work better. So I said, what do you think about that? And they go, that sounds great. And I said, do you think that your customer would like to hear about that kind of process? And they go, yeah, I th- I, we, think th- I, we think that would work much better for them. We think they'd be thrilled about that. I said, do you think that that would keep you from having to answer your phone at 7 o'clock on a Saturday night? They said, yeah, and I said, well, great. That means that your highest and best use is no longer answering the phone at 7 o'clock on a Saturday night. And all we've done to change things so that that's not your highest and best use anymore is we've put a better business process in place. We're not requiring that you make up for a deficient business process. So that's what this stuff looks like on a day-to-day basis. So now, and, and we've actually just done it, if we've said your highest and best use is no longer babysitting these very influential relationships in the company, then what is your highest and best use now? What's the next level? What's stage four? Well, stage four is what we just did. It's working on business processes. It's thinking about how do we want the company to be perceived in the world at large? What do we want our customers' experience to be? What do we want our employees' experience to be? What do we want our culture to look like? And what are the things that we're actually going to do on a day-to-day basis? What are the processes we're going to put in place to facilitate that culture? And this is fun work for me. This is probably the part of the job that I love the most, to get involved in business processes and business workflow because – for one, it's stage four instead of stage one. You know, the the technical task stuff, there is some business process stuff there, but a lot of times it's just letting go of the task. So in other words, it's like, you know, do you need to really spend a lot of time working on the business process for closing up the shop? No, you don't. You just need to list out what are the things that have to be done, right? Do you need to, if the, if the technical tasks, like let's say the highest and best use of the business owner is making the uh nightly backups of the computer system you know that I don't think this is real popular anymore, but there were days where you had these these magnetic uh tape drives, and the business owner would stick one in every night before they left the office and make sure that all the data was going on there, and then they would take it home with them and put it in the safe, and the next day they'd bring back another one and they and I would talk to these businesses back in the day, and you know you're talking about stockbrokers and lawyers offices and CPA firms and you go, What's your highest and best use? And they're like, Oh, you know, information's everything. That the most important thing that gets done is the nightly backup. Well that's a very technical task. Do you really need to work on the business process around the technical task? Or do you just need to list out one, two, three, four, here's how you make the tape backup. So when I talk about getting a kick out of business processes, and that's the, that's an area that I really like to spend time on with clients it's not just outlining the technical task. It's really thinking about how do we do stuff here? Not It's not what we do, but how we do it. And you've heard you know, the overused cliche, work smarter, not harder. And it's not even about working smarter. It's about working intentionally. So what do we want the customer to experience, and what are the steps we're going to take to make sure that that experience has a high degree of likelihood of, of actually being experienced by the customer? And you'll work on thing. You might work on your sales process. So you might we're doing this right now with another company that I work with, where I'm doing ride-alongs with salespeople and watching everything from where they park the vehicle and the driveway to how they greet the customer, to how work orders are generated, how pricing is done, how jobs are sold, how expectations are communicated, how. how leads are followed up on or not followed up on. There's a ton of business processes in there. And yeah, there are some definite step one, step two, step three, check the box types of things, but there's also the training and how those things are carried out. And there are certain things that are the check the box things that are on there specifically to make sure that a certain impression is given or that a certain value is communicated to the customer. And when a business owner can get involved in that type of discussion and that that type of role, then the business can start to take on the, the values of the owner, the values that the owner wants that business to embody. And it can do it in everything from how customers are greeted to how stuff is dropped off for the UPS guy at the end of the day. I mean, you have a tremendous opportunity when you graduate to this level four, stage four of your highest and best use maturity to really infuse everything the company does with a how we do it that reflects your culture and reflects the way you think the company ought to be doing things. And I really like to see business owners get the amount of impact that they can have. It's like that you can see the light bulb go off over their head when they see Hey, by spending we're going to spend let's say we spent three hours this afternoon reworking our sales process. If we're successful, that sales process process is going to pay dividends um you know ten times a day for each each of five salespeople, so that's fifty times a day, five days a week, two hundred and fifty times a week, four weeks. Uh, a month, a thousand times a month, twelve thousand times a year, for as long as we have this process, if we do it right, if we get this right and and we 're intentional about asking what the customer wants and how do we meet their needs better, and how do we identify those needs and how do we manage their expectations and how do we deliver on that, then we 've got the opportunity for twelve thousand times a year to do better than we have been doing so there's There are so few areas in the business where you can leverage that kind of power, that kind of leadership potential in the owner. That's one of the reasons that I find it one of the most fascinating parts of the business to work on, doing this, this business process design and business workflow design and, and really asking tough questions about how you work the values of the company into the business processes. So if one of your values is care for the customer – Every single business process that you look at should have care for the customer. One of the companies that I like a lot here locally, it's run by a friend of mine, that they see their business as providing comfort to customers. And what's interesting is everything they do is about comfort, not just the the tangible products that they sell and service, which provide literal comfort in our homes in hot, steamy Florida. It's an HVAC company called Tri-County Air Conditioning. But they also talk about comfort from the spiritual sense, and you might get a, a call or, or a request or, or a, a question from the technician servicing your home saying, hey, um, you know, is there anything that we can pray for you about? Because they're concerned about not just your physical comfort, your spiritual comfort. And then one of the things that's really popular with my family, especially my two boys, is every time they, they leave, they leave these two freshly baked chocolate chip cookies with you as, as when they leave your invoice and you know that it's comfort food literal comfort food because they're the comfort care company and so they've gone they've gone to extraordinary lengths to think about in every single process in that company what does it mean to deliver comfort and if it means leaving a chocolate chip cookie behind then that's what they do now do they sell chocolate chip cookies no they sell air conditioners but leaving a chocolate chip cookie is very consistent with the values of their company And that's something that came out of the owner's leadership. So I'm going to, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about architecting business processes because I'm real passionate about it. That's something that I see uh, a lot of benefit in. The other thing, though, is that one of the nice things about these business processes is that they literally change the business overnight. You can put a new process in today. And when you start implementing that process, when people start doing it, the results transform the business overnight. So if we change our sales process, the changes don't take forever to show up. They start to show up immediately. When we change the process that we use to follow up with customers, they start to pay dividends immediately. And in terms of bang for the buck, things that we do with clients, business process, workflow design, and redesign is one of the one of the absolute game changers that delivers immediate value to clients and that's why I like it a lot. So that's stage 4. What's stage 5? I think stage 5, once a business owner uh if they say my highest and best use is sitting down and designing processes, one you know that kind of raises my eyebrows because here's somebody who's already progressed past the technical task part, they've progressed past the selling, they've progressed past maintaining influential relationships, and now they're working on architecting business processes. They're at level five, and I'm like, wow, this person really gets it. So then you go, well, what's next? I mean, it's like, well, that's, you know, I don't think that's the ultimate highest and best use. If you think about some some very influential business leaders, I doubt that what they did every day was design business processes. So what's next? What What's the... The level five. Well, I I think personally, it's recruiting, hiring, and mentoring the people who are on your team. I think this is where the focus shifts from outside the four walls. So, and, and you know, I think selling is part of that. Maintaining relationships. You're primarily focused on customers and other people. And even when you get into business processes. You're working with people inside the company, but typically you're working with them on things that affect people outside the company, and your attention still is on the customer as the the kind of be all end all, and what you're going to do to drive the customer experience. After that, when you move into recruiting, hiring, and mentoring, and this becomes your level five, uh, you know, level five maturity scale for highest and best use. That focus is all on people inside the organization. So we start to look at how do we bring people into the company? How do we identify people within the company, people who are already here that are ready to move on to the next level? Do we have professional development plans for our best and brightest folks? Are we growing the company at a pace that's going to provide room for all of these folks at lower and middle levels to to move up? We want to have places for them to go. And in order to do that, we may need to grow the company so there are more of those senior positions and more opportunities available for them. Um, Bringing folks into the recruiting and hiring are, are two really kind of seminal areas. Because if you get a leader who's worked their way all the way through this progression and they've delegated now, Because at each one of these points, for you to move up to the next level, you have to delegate the level you're currently on to somebody else. So what we're talking about now is delegating those uh, business process functions to somebody else. So if you're in a position to do that, then the company's growing at a pretty good clip. And you're in a position where you need to hire more people. And so now your role becomes recruiting and hiring the best people and and you're not recruiting and hiring everybody obviously there's some lower level positions in the company where you're hiring and and hopefully you've got opportunities to you know hire from within where you're promoting folks and moving them up to other positions and you're evaluating their competencies maybe against outside applicants and to make sure that they stand up and to make sure you're in tune with the market and you're getting the best people but ultimately You've done a really good job of developing talent, and when it comes to making a decision between an outsider and somebody who's already in the company, you go, oh, well, we're very confident to to bring this person up and hire from within. But if you're growing, if you're in this position where this is your highest and best use, you're probably growing fast enough that that's not enough to fill all of those um, more senior positions. And so you're going to... Um, be looking outside the four walls of the business to hire some management talent, to hire some leaders who are going to be a, a pretty big part of the organization going forward. So how do you recruit those people? Um, you know, who are you networking with to make sure that you're in tune with the best and the brightest and what the current standards are? Are you working with your current managers to identify what uh, their needs are and what the, the next generation of the company is going to require from their viewpoint? And when it comes to uh, evaluating those people and bringing them on board, what kind of practices are you using? My clients all know I'm a huge fan of a book called Top Grading, which is essentially a a process for bringing new people into the company uh, and hiring them. And it's not, you know, it's like everything else I do. It's not rocket science. It's a discipline. And, you know, how disciplined is your hiring process? Uh, is it kind of shoot from the hip? Oh, I, I met this person um, at a, a social function or a country club or uh, sat next to them on an airline and they really impressed me, so I want to give them a shot. Or is there an actual discipline to it and there's rigor to the process so that you make sure you've got a very high percentage of A players coming into the company? And then mentoring. Um, So once those folks are in the company, are you developing programs and making sure that your managers are involved in mentoring them and giving them the kind of the non-technical subjective guidance that they need to be successful in the company? And are you mentoring uh, one or two of your direct reports so that um, you've got some good succession plans in the future when it comes to replacing you? So that becomes then the... The focus of the level five on the maturity scale, and one of the best books that that um, can give you insight into how important this is at the very highest levels of business is Jack Welch's autobiography called Straight from the Gut. And as you read that book and you, and he goes through his career, you know, he's an engineer, he's a chemical engineer by training, and so early on, you know, he's he kind of makes his way through all of these progressions as he moves up through General Electric. And when he gets to, you know, kind of the the pinnacle of his career and he's chairman of GE, he's spends an extraordinary amount of time mentoring and recruiting and evaluating the people who report to him. And when they move, when he decides that he's going to step down – and they move into the succession process for the next CEO and chairman of of General Electric, it's really instructing, in, in, instructive to see how they went about the process, the nuts and bolts of the process, and how they selected the candidates, and and how they evaluated them against one another, and the, the consequences of how they evaluated them, and, and the sacrifices that they had to make. So they had these three candidates, and... The, the way they set up their process, they set up a process that uh, they felt like gave them uh, essentially a 100% chance of selecting the best person of the three for the job. And you go, well, that's great. That 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 sounds good to me. But the consequence of that is that the process was – it was done in such a way that the other two individuals, they had – almost zero likelihood of retaining those the two individuals who weren't selected so you've got the three best people in the company and the trade-off for making sure that you pick the right one is that you will not keep the other two and that always struck me as an interesting um, uh, what do you call it Um, I can't think of the word dilemma I guess so you, you have this dilemma where I know I'm going to pick the right person, but the consequence of that is I have to get rid of two of my top three people. And these are the kind of things that these level five leaders spend their time on, making sure that the right people are in the right seats at the most senior levels of the company. And they also don't lose focus on making sure that the the people who report to them are bringing in the right people and putting them at the right seats lower down in the organization. So they delegate this responsibility, but delegation means that they also have their finger on the pulse of it. And one of the things Jack Welch all, was always looking for in a leader is how well that leader was identifying, recruiting, and and retaining the best talent in his or her division. So that's that's also the role of these level five folks. Not only are they looking at the senior levels and making sure that they identify and and retain, recruit the right talent, they're looking at the people who report to them and making sure that they have the same skill set. And they'll spend a lot of time mentoring those folks, their direct reports on what it looks like to to hire the right people and to put the right people in the right seats. So... I have run into a handful of businesses that are under $20 million where the, the business owner defines their highest and best use as this recruiting, hiring, and mentoring function. Um, sometimes you get very charismatic leaders who like to skip over one or two of these phases and jump straight into the recruiting, hiring, and mentoring Phase and they, and they see that as their highest and best use, but they see it as their highest and best use because they don't particularly enjoy um, managing the influential relationships or architecting business processes or selling or you know it's just they like the idea of their role being you know, their highest and best use being hiring and recruiting and mentoring the best talent. But one of the things I've found in those groups, a telltale sign of a CEO or an owner who has moved up the chain too fast before they've done the housekeeping to take care of all those lower levels is high turnover. So if you see a company where the owner says, oh, yeah, my highest and best use is recruiting and hiring and mentoring people to, to prepare for the next generation or the next big um, you know movement of the company, and you see a lot of turnover in that organization, it means that they never spent the time – getting the relationships right. It means they never spent the time getting the business processes right. It could be that they never spent the time developing enough business to support the company. Maybe they, never, they didn't spend enough time in that sales role, being the chief salesperson of the company, and they never really hired somebody to do that effectively. And the company, as a result, just does not have the resources to retain a lot of talent. And they do it with with empty promises before they the the recruits find out they're empty and they find out there's not enough money here to pay me what I thought I was there there's not enough business here to create the positions I was promised, and I'm going to go somewhere else so when you see high turnover in an organization where the CEO says my highest and best use is recruiting hiring mentoring, it means that there's some there's some things they skipped over that you got to go back and revisit so what's next if if you get that person who says recruiting, hiring, mentoring, that's my, my highest and best use. And you go, wow, that's really cool because I can see you didn't skip over these other areas. And you've got some really great programs and you've got leaders in place to do these things. Where do you go from here? I mean, is that, is that all? And I think, you know, I think a good example of this is probably Bill Gates. I'm just, Take a drink here for a second. So, if you think about Bill Gates, early on, the guy was doing technical stuff. He was essentially writing code. That's exactly what he was doing. He was building the stuff that they were going to sell to customers. And then eventually he stopped writing code and he hired somebody else to do that and he went on the road and he was just selling this stuff. He was selling MS-DOS licenses to IBM and he was selling uh, Microsoft Office uh, licensing to municipalities and he was bundling thousands of of Windows 3.1 licenses and selling them to school districts. And he was the guy who was out there doing that stuff. And then he moved into just managing a few key influential relationships most likely resellers and and retailers <clears throat> hardware manufacturers and that kind of thing and then he moved into business processes and how redefining how microsoft did what it did what product lines it was going to to pursue and which ones it was going to let die how what kind of licensing models it was going to use <clears throat> and then he moved into recruiting and hiring and retaining the best people. And then what? Well, then he became the kind of the the visionary, the person who drove the direction of the company. <clears throat> he had other people who worried about the recruiting, the hiring, the mentoring. He had other people who worried about the business processes. He had other people who managed the relationships. He had other people who did the selling, and he had other people who did the technical tasks. But the thing that they didn't do was drive the vision of the company. You know, one of the the things that Bill Gates is credited with is this vision of a computer on every single desktop. And he's responsible for for the word desktop that we use in computer product. Today you talk about desktop, it doesn't mean a physical desktop, it means the screen when apps aren't running on your computer, whether it's a laptop or or a, a desktop computer. And eventually that vision was no longer sufficient to sustain Microsoft. Eventually even that vision wasn't what was going to move the company forward. So what happened to Bill Gates? He replaced himself. And this is the final level. This is kind of the ultimate level six, um, you know, highest and best use. Bill Gates realized that his highest and best use was no longer driving the vision of Microsoft. There was somebody else who could believe in the vision to a greater extent than he could because he got to the point where the vision had been obtained. There literally was a computer on every desktop. And Whatever the next vision was for Microsoft, he recognized that he wasn't the guy who could believe in it as passionately as somebody else. He had been so tied to the vision prior to that that when that was achieved and it came down to, okay, well, what's next, he had a harder time getting behind that vision than somebody else did. And so Balmer was the successor who came in, and and Balmer's big push, and, and he's been parodied for it, was – Really working with the development community to build out software. So now that there is a computer on on every desk, what's the software we're going to build to make it kind of the next um, make the desktop an integral part of the business environment? And so you saw a bigger push in the Microsoft Office suite, and along the way, a lot of the competitors died off. So you no longer had WordPerfect, you no longer had Lotus. Uh, one, two, three. You no longer had uh, Lotus Notes. Instead, you had Microsoft Word and Excel and Outlook. And that was the vision that somebody else besides Bill Gates was responsible for driving on a day to day basis. So now, is Bill Gates still involved with Microsoft? Yes. He owns an extraordinary amount of stock in the company at this point. And so he continues to reap the rewards of ownership. But in terms of his leadership of the company, he's recognized that now his leadership is as a major stockholder, and he's going to leverage that through philanthropic ventures, and he's going to cede the, the visionary leadership of the company to somebody else. So that and so what is this so i 'm talking about one of the largest companies in the world. What does this look like for small business and that 's where I spend my time i don 't consult with Microsoft, although if they called and asked if they could write me a check i 'm sure I would say yes, and we could work something out. But my days are spent with companies in this two million to twenty million dollar space. So what does it look like when they when this when the owner gets to the point where they 're ready to cede that vision over to somebody else, and that 's what we call succession and it usually comes you know bill gates it, he went through this period early in life most of my clients are going through this period a little bit later they're in their 50s and 60s and 70s and they're going i need to i need to get to this point where i can seed the vision over to somebody who can believe in it more than i can the vision of the company's changing and the way that it's changing means that i'm not the best person to really believe in it and drive it and inspire the the movement of the company going forward. So in my work, I mean a lot of times that in small businesses, those tend to be family members. This tends to be generational succession in business. And when you get uh when you get all the way to this level six piece, if they've gone through the first five steps and they've done the technical stuff, they've done the selling, They've managed the relationships. They've architected the business processes. They've recruited, hired, mentored folks. And as they've moved from one of those steps to the next, they've done a good job of delegating, effectively delegating, responsibly delegating that job to someone else when they move to the next step. When it gets time to cede the vision over to the next generation, that next generation can actually spend time at level six, they don't have to go back down the scale, and that's what's really difficult about family business is a lot of business owners, um, they they do everything right, and, and, and these are top-performing, top-tier businesses. They do everything right in moving through these different stages, and they finally get to the point where they're at stage six and they're ready to move on to the next level and hand stage six, delegate stage six off to somebody else, which is this visionary of the company, and they hand it off to somebody who has no experience in any of the other steps. And that's why I'm a huge fan of when kids come into the business, they start at that technical level. I'm not a huge fan of kids who were you know, business majors uh, running the – the HVAC company, I think, unless the kid has spent lots of time out in the field fixing air conditioners, and he's a certified HVAC tech, um, I think that there's huge value in the mailroom concept of working your way up through the business. Not because It's not about earning your stripes. It's about understanding what these different progressions mean to the leader in terms of their role, because... Here's why it's so important. If you get nothing else out of this, here's why it's important. When you have a business owner who's moved through all five of these steps and now they're sitting at number six, where their chief responsibility is visionary of the company, their highest and what started this whole conversation, what's your highest and best use? So their highest and best use now is being the visionary of the company, effectively carrying out that day to day. Uh, responsibility of carrying the vision of the company means that they do not get dragged into any of those areas underneath. They've effectively delegated those to other people. They've made other people responsible for them. And they've delegated, delegated, not abdicated. So what the difference is, when you delegate a responsibility you hold the people who you've delegated it to accountable for their performance. And in order for you to hold them accountable for their performance, you have to know something about how that job gets done. Otherwise, you can't effectively hold them accountable. You won't know, you know just frankly speaking, you won't know when they're blowing smoke up your butt. If you don't know how the thing is supposed to get done, you're not going to be able to tell when somebody is pulling a smoke screen over your eyes and just giving you a load of BS. So the people who have moved through these five levels and they get to that visionary stage, they don't get sucked into these lower levels because they've delegated those, and they've delegated those to people who delegate things that they had before, and they know how to hold people accountable because they've been there. And yeah, technology changes, and yeah, business changes, but on the whole, they're in touch enough to be able to to recognize that and and effectively delegate and hold people accountable. If you get the person who hasn't gone the mailroom route, if the the son or daughter comes in and they haven't moved themselves all the way through the business and worked at different positions where they've had to, as a leader, delegate these same functions to people then they don't understand what delegation of that function looks like. And they certainly don't have the capability to hold people accountable for it. So the result is if you can't delegate it and you can't hold somebody accountable for it, what happens? You wind up doing it. And when you wind up doing it, you take yourself away from your highest and best use. So if you have a business owner who's at this visionary stage and they seed The visionary responsibility to the second generation. And the second generation has no experience delegating or holding others accountable for these lower level functions. They have no choice but to get involved in doing them if something starts to go wrong. And when they get involved in doing them, guess what? They give up. They give up the visionary role of the company. And I believe that's the reason that so few second and third generation businesses survive. There are statistics out there that talk about like 5% of businesses survive the third generation, and it's for lack of effective leadership. And when you talk about leadership, that's a fancy term, and it's something that we read about in lots and lots of books you can pull off Amazon. But what does it ultimately mean? It means that they forgot what their highest and best use was. They were not spending... 30 to 40 hours a week on their highest and best use. And why weren't they doing that? They weren't doing it because they were getting pulled into doing these other things. They were doing stuff that they should not be doing that wasn't their highest and best use. So practically speaking, if you go back and assess, you know, where do you feel your highest and best use is right now? Be honest about where that is. And... If it's stage two, it's stage two. If you say my highest and best use is selling, nobody can sell like I can sell, then that's what you need to do. That if whatever your highest and best use is, that's what it is. It's, it, it's not that it should be anything different. It's that it just is what it is. But knowing what you know now, you, you know that if selling is your highest and best use, then you're only at stage two you've got a lot of room where you can grow that business and you can grow your leadership capacity of the business. If you say my highest and best use is putting out technical fires because that's just what I have to do right now, then you know that you're at stage one, and the next thing that you need to do to, to move to the next level is find somebody you can delegate those technical tasks to. And that probably means you need to go out and find some new accounts to raise the money so that you can move more into a selling role and give up some of the technical tasks. If you find that uh, you're at that selling role and you want to get to the next level of managing influence influential relationships, well, you're going to have to train some other people to sell as well as you sell so that you can move up to that next level and you can just manage a few key accounts. You can just manage a few key vendor relationships. And if... That's If that's where you are now and you've got, you know, half a dozen major accounts that are your responsibility and you have to handhold those folks and you're the only one who can sign off on the, the CAD orders from the supply house and, and that tells you you're at level three to get to level four of architecting business processes, you're going to have to give up some control. You're going to have to, and it's scary to give up those key accounts, but again, how do you do that? You get the reason that it's you that has to be responsible for those key accounts a lot of times can be traced back to poor business processes. You're substituting yourself for a poor business process. So go to work on the business process because that's level four. And if you can get to the point where... You can improve the business processes enough where you don't have to worry about those those key relationships because you can delegate and monitor them and make sure they're getting as good, if not better, service from the process you put in place. Now you can start to work on processes in other areas of the business, processes that have employees at the heart, processes that have recruiting and that kind of stuff at the heart. And if you get good enough at those and and you can delegate the process side and train some other people on how to look at business processes so that you can move out of level four into level five, which is recruiting and hiring and mentoring. And if you say right now that you are at that recruiting, hiring and mentoring level, but you don't feel competent at business processes and there's nobody really in the company that you've delegated that to, you might be fooling yourself and you need to go back and work through that level four stage of getting good at business process implementation, before you you take on this role of recruiting, hiring, mentoring. And if recruiting, hiring, mentoring really truly is your highest and best use right now, then you need to set your sights on the next level where you can you can hand that off to a person, and your chief role is really just driving the vision of the company. And that's a pretty big company. That's a pretty big role. Um, to, to have the luxury to spend 30 to 40 hours a week on setting the vision for the company and working on the major, major tasks related to that. And if you find yourself by chance at that last point of being the visionary, that's what you spend your time on right now. That's what you do. It's uh, 30 to 40 hours a week of your job. Now you can start looking around and hopefully you've already got some idea of what succession looks like. And hopefully the people who are on your succession list are folks who have followed in your footsteps and they've worked through all of those same processes that we've been talking about. Because when they get to your level and when you seed the vision to them they'll be able to spend their time there and they won't get sucked back down into doing some of those other things that aren't their highest and best use. So I hope that this has been uh, good for you. It's, it's a really key part of understanding what growth in a company is all about and ultimately how companies get to the next level and move beyond the owners to accomplish incredible things and change the world. And that's what gets me excited. I love being a part of that. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's what has me coming back and doing these podcasts. And uh, I absolutely love it. So if you have feedback... You can go to our website at axiomstrategic.com podcast. You can find this episode there, and you can leave comments in the show notes. Uh, I'll put some show notes up that reference any books we talked about. I talked about Jack Welch's book. I'm sure we'll put that in there. We talked about top grading. I'll put a link to that in as well. Uh, but until next time, I, I hope that these, these ideas were helpful to you. If they were, uh, send me a comment. I'd love to hear back from you guys. It really makes this worthwhile for me. And uh, until next time, I'm Joey Brandon, and we'll see you back on the Axiom Podcast.